Hello and welcome to the Resiliency by Design podcast. In this podcast, we embark on a journey exploring the multitude of issues woven into climate change. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I will be guiding you through this exploration with the help of experts from the community. These experts are individuals taking action on climate change through adaptation or mitigation. The journey to a future where we can all thrive is not a simple path, but with the guidance of great leaders and a willingness to change, our future on this beautiful planet will be bright. On this episode, we are exploring natural asset management and how it impacts local governments and citizens. Joining me on this podcast is Roy Brook, the Executive Director of the Municipal Natural Assets Initiative. Roy is also facilitating an upcoming Adaptation Learning Network course on natural asset management. Thanks for joining me, Roy. I'm hoping you can provide our listeners with some insight into your background. Sure, thanks uh, for having me. For most of the 1990s, I worked in Ottawa on Parliament Hill as a political advisor to someone who became in Canada's environment minister. Then from roughly 2003 to 2011, I worked for the United Nations for four different UN entities, mostly based in Geneva and Switzerland, but also uh, spent some time in Rwanda. And I was always at the confluence of environment development and humanitarian action. Then we had a a child in uh, 2010 and moved back to Victoria, where I was a director of sustainability for the city for a couple of years. When that job ended, I consulted for a while and then have become over the last four or five years more and more engaged in what has now become known as uh, natural asset management. And I have to say, I've been fortunate to do a lot of really exciting things over the course of my career thus far. And the natural asset management work is probably amongst the most exciting and dynamic and practical of everything I've uh, done so far. It sounds like you have a uh, plethora of knowledge that you're coming to this with, and it's exciting and kind of varied background. What inspired you about climate action and how has that inspiration led you to climate adaptation? For me personally, it's perhaps foremost a little less about inspiration and more about obligation, I would say. If if we as a species want a habitable future, we have to tackle the climate crisis. And every available shred of scientific evidence supports this idea. Having said that, I, I do find that there's opportunity for every facet of our lives in how we tackle the climate crisis. It can mean cleaner, healthier cities for all of us, uh, more robust, dynamic, healthy ecosystems, and a world of economic opportunity and clean, green jobs. As for climate adaptation, more specifically, again, I I think we have an, an obligation to adapt to those impacts of climate change 
that can no longer be avoided. And there's also probably a very strong moral obligation here since we know that climate change will disproportionately affect the poorest and the most vulnerable people. But even here too, I think there's an, an area of opportunity and inspiration in the sense that our adaptation actions can embody the whole concept of low carbon resilience, namely those measures that help us both to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Your upcoming course, you'll be going through both of those mitigation adaptation pieces through natural asset management. Definitely, yes. Could you provide a brief description of natural asset management? Natural asset management is really about understanding, conceptualizing, and managing nature. So this could include wetlands, forests, aquifers, as core vital infrastructure that is central to any resilient infrastructure system. I had a conversation recently about green infrastructure and rain gardens and how that impacts the way that water resources are moved and how they're managed in a city. Would that be an example of a natural asset management? It could be. When we, MNAI, the Municipal Natural Assets Initiative, the Canadian NGO of which I'm a part, when we speak of natural assets, we see them as a subset of green infrastructure. Uh, Green infrastructure is a broader umbrella heading. Underneath it, you would have natural assets in the sense of forests, rivers, riparian areas, foreshores, green spaces, and things of that nature. Then you would have what we would call enhanced natural assets, which could include things like bioswales and rain gardens. And then finally, engineered natural assets. So this is your permeable pavers and green roofs and things of that nature. And they all have an important role. They are all important elements of delivering services in a community. We just happen to focus on the first set of those, namely the wetlands, forest, aquifers, which, as I say, to the extent that most local governments are, are thinking about them at all, they're thinking about them fairly narrowly as green or social or recreational amenities, all of which are very important. And I'm not going to suggest for a second that they're not, but they leave on the table a whole bunch of other values and services for which they could be conceptualizing, valuing, and ultimately managing these assets for. So the value goes deeper than what they already have. I'm hoping that you might be able to provide some insight into your upcoming course. And when does the course start? We've run it three times so far. The next version is on April 19th. And I think there's still a few spots left. Should anyone listening to this be interested in joining? And thereafter, I think we're running it three more times this year. And it is really about the concepts and the fundamentals of natural asset management. So it takes place over four weeks. It's mostly online learning, but we have four synchronous sessions, which are the buzzword for sessions that I'm there at the same time as everybody else. In week one, uh, we do basically an introduction to the concepts and definitions 
of natural asset management. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about now. In week two, we talk about what's going on at a community level in Canada. So the latest and greatest of all the practical examples that we can find amongst local governments that are really leading the way in this work. The third week is what we call enabling activities, or this is really all of the different work aimed at removing barriers and creating opportunities for local governments. The final fourth week is a chance for the learners to integrate everything that they have done in the preceding three weeks to subject it to a bit of uh, peer review amongst groups that we separate everyone into. And I would hope that at least in some cases, what would emerge from that are the beginnings of new projects that the learners themselves can be taking forward in their own professional or community context. A lot of the people who are in the course work for local governments or for engineering consulting firms, or they're just interested members of the community, but everyone lives somewhere and everyone has natural assets wherever it is that they live. So there is a practical opportunity to turn what is learned in the course into projects that will hopefully make a difference. That's a really key part of a lot of the Adaptation Learning Network courses is taking all that knowledge and turning it into something that can be actioned. We've talked about it a little bit already, but I'm hoping that you can relate how natural asset management is connected to climate adaptation. There's a whole bunch of connections because this course is part of the Adaptation Learning Network, we devote a whole session during one of the weekly discussions into exploring the linkages. And I'll just give a snapshot of what some of the things are that we've discussed in these weekly sessions. First, climate change is a principal driver for the whole need to move to a resilient, low-carbon infrastructure system. So stated differently, we cannot meet all of our service delivery needs in a changing climate simply by defaulting to new, bigger, and better engineered solutions. So natural assets are fundamentally connected to a shift to uh, resilient infrastructure systems that will allow communities to receive services in a changing climate. Second of all, sustainable service delivery, the ability of infrastructure to deliver core services that we all need, requires healthy underlying ecosystems, which in turn requires that these ecosystems be biodiverse. And biodiversity is fundamentally connected to both climate change mitigation and adaptation, and is also a part of all of the work that, that we do. As you can start to see, all of these issues of climate change, adaptation, mitigation, and healthy ecosystems, they're not separate issues. They are all fundamentally interconnected. Some of the things that we're seeing in the communities that are doing this work is that nature, natural assets, one of the reasons they're so important 
to adaptation and to resilient infrastructure systems is that they have a, a kind of an inherent plasticity, an engineered pipe. It's not going to get any bigger because it's rainy outside, whereas we do see that wetlands and forests, for example, do have an ability to adapt to some degree to a changing climate to continue to deliver service in a changing climate. And thus we see that their value can even increase over time in terms of their ability to give service to a community. The issues are, are complex, but natural asset management, adaptation, mitigation are, are all sort of fundamentally bound up together. It's not easy to describe the nuances that are involved in how climate adaptation, mitigation, all those pieces work out. The second part of the course, you're going to be exploring communities that are leading the way in natural asset management, including Gibson's BC. What are these communities doing well? and Why did you include them in the course? All communities that want to undertake natural asset management as a starting point, they have to inventory their natural assets. You can't really do much more until you understand what natural assets you own and importantly, what natural assets you rely on, whether or not you own them, the condition of those assets, the risks they face. Then in the work that MNAI does, we do a lot of modeling work to understand what are the services that these natural assets provide, what's the value of these services. We model out future scenarios so that we can understand what will happen to the natural assets if, for example, you acquire new land or the condition changes as a result of rehabilitation or if you expand a riparian setback. So we can model all of that out and that helps inform decision making. I would call all of that the kind of fundamental or baseline work that you have to do to get rolling on natural asset management. Thereafter, once you get into the implementation phase, uh, it's pretty diverse across Canada and there's things that one can do or a local government can do at strategic levels, policy, financial, practical, programmatic levels. A town like Gibson's, which is still several years ahead of the next closest local government in terms of what it's doing on natural asset management, it's done stuff right across the board. They have recognized in their asset management policy nature as being as important as engineered assets, not as some kind of do-gooding statement, but as uh, just a fundamental recognition of their reality. They've changed development cost charge bylaws, subdivision bylaws. They've made some very exciting changes with their subdivision bylaws so that instead of developers coming in, scraping away every last green object and then saying, okay, what services should we now build back? They instead say, okay, well, what natural features can we leave intact and thereby continue providing services so that we don't need to build a whole bunch of new stuff and pass along a whole bunch of new costs to the taxpayer? So they're doing all of those kinds of things within their community. The changes they've made also drill into even how they manage human resources. Instead of having parks and public works and engineering, each showing up on a different day to do a different thing in a given location, they all work together much more coherently across silos 
to ensure that natural assets are being well managed. By the end of this year, I should add, just the communities that MNAI is working with will have clocked over 50 in, I think, five or six provinces now. And there's, of course, lots of other exciting work going on in communities that relates to natural asset management, but has absolutely nothing to do with MNAI. We try to bring some of those voices and perspectives into the course, too. It reminds me of this term that I was reading in an article called multi-solving. And I feel like natural asset management is really looking at nature and the ability for it to multi-solve all of these different things that towns are already dealing with. It definitely plays into that nuance of how do we mitigate and adapt to climate change. You're going to be talking about what factors are involved in creating a enabling environment for natural asset management. What are the key factors that you've observed through your work? There's in Canada close to 4,000 local governments and As I mentioned a minute ago, we've worked with roughly 50 of them, which at one level is great. At another level, that's less than 1% of all local governments in Canada. At our current rate, it would take us a century and a half to work our way through all of them. And that's not useful or, or desirable. Fundamentally, what we need, if this natural asset management is to be a mainstream practice, are three things. Market demand. So you need communities that actually want to do this work. Multiple players who can meet that demand. So not just MNAI, but many other organizations, consulting firms, engineering firms, and the like. And then vital importance, an overarching set of norms and standards so that we know that the work is being done effectively, comparably, and replicably. If everyone's rushing off doing their own thing, we're no further ahead than we are now. But if we have an effective body of norms, then we can achieve scale. What we do in the course is talk about some of the efforts being made to create norms. The engineers and geoscientists of BC will have out the first professional practice guidelines, so basically the operating standards for engineers on asset management, including natural asset management. So that is one example in one profession of some of the work that is going on. We also talk about the public sector accounting board guidelines, which are a big issue for a lot of this work. It's in many people's minds, a challenge or a barrier. The accounting standards in Canada don't allow people to consider the natural assets to be tangible capital assets. For local governments that want to move ahead and have financial plans, costed financial plans for rehabilitation and restoration. PSAB really doesn't have a whole lot to say about that. There's still a lot of benefits financially to looking at how these things can be utilized in the best possible way. Absolutely. Look, if PSAB never changed their rules, and, and if you never stuck any of this stuff in a financial statement, the, the reality is by undertaking natural asset management, you will be taking better and more informed decisions. You will not be ascribing a zero value to natural assets and pretending they do nothing when in fact, in all cases, they do. You will be finding evidence-based ways to secure 
core local government services. So again, things like flood protection, drinking water filtration, aquifer recharge, coastal zone protection, all of these kinds of things, potentially at a much lower cost than with engineered assets, because natural assets have no capital costs. They frequently have lower operating costs. Plus, you are also securing a whole range of other benefits through appropriate natural asset management. We talked about some of them, biodiversity, social, cultural, recreational. There's a growing body of evidence around the connections between positive health outcomes and healthy natural assets. So even if as I say, even if PSAB never did anything, we never reported in financial statements, there are, there's every good reason for every local government to be understanding and managing natural assets fully and, and effectively. Who needs to be around the table in order to enable natural asset management in a community? At a local government level, we would expect to work with the same people as are involved in standard asset management. Why? Because asset management is all about sustainable service delivery. And if your focus is on service delivery, then it doesn't matter if the service is coming from a green asset or a gray asset. What matters is whether or not that service is cost-effective and reliable. That's the point of asset management. This can't be just the purview of one person in one department. I, I would also say that we're seeing growing evidence of a really important role that different community stakeholders can play in all of this. In one of our projects, we see that they're a really important source of a scientific evidence and data that we simply can't easily get from national or, or regional data sets. And in other cases, community engagement is really an important source of momentum for natural asset management and helps ride out the ups and downs of council and staff interest. If you have sustained community interest in protecting natural assets, that's a really important thing. That makes a lot of sense if you have more people on board that go beyond those electoral cycles. You have a community of people who are passionate about making things happen. I, I agree with that. I would also say that we try to emphasize in the course the vital and fundamental importance of including First Nations, Indigenous worldviews and knowledge in natural asset management and in adaptation more generally, not as some sort of plug and play concept, but as a fundamental interweaving. I don't wanna overstate the case. There's far more to do than has been done in terms of interweaving First Nations, Indigenous worldviews and knowledge into natural asset management. But we have made some progress in the Comox Valley and are very fortunate to have worked with the First Nation there. It's absolutely an area where we have to do far more. We are really fortunate that we have one person from the Comox First Nation who has contributed some videos and content to the course, but it's an area where, as I say, I, I think we need to do way more than we have, and it's a very much a work in progress. People who are interested in this course beyond people who work in governments, why is natural asset management a helpful tool for them? You could think about that in a few different ways. Every person, whether or not they recognize it, 
is dependent in some way on the natural assets that are providing services in their community and thus directly or indirectly have an interest in maintaining the health of those natural assets. And let's face it, everybody's a taxpayer. And if communities are building and overbuilding engineered assets because they're not understanding the value that natural assets are already providing, then those are people that are paying more than they might otherwise need to. From those two perspectives, both the service provision and the taxpayer point of view, I think everybody has at least some interest in this and in ensuring that their natural assets are appropriately understood and conceptualized and managed. And beyond that, I would say there's a multitude of very important groups that are working on natural assets and natural asset management in different ways, whether or not they call it that, whether this is conservation organizations or science-based organizations or groups like Streamkeepers. And we've had the good fortune at MNAI to work with a great many of them. And we are seeing in the course some people coming from some of these types of community groups who really want to ensure that their communities are doing far more to understand and protect their natural assets. So I would say anybody with that kind of a perspective or interest may well find things in, in the course that are of interest to them. And the last question that I had for you is, uh, what is one reason why someone should take this course? If you work for a local government, then you are responsible at some level for service delivery. And natural assets are a fundamental component of service delivery. So it would be really important to understand what role they can play in your community. For somebody who does not work for a local government, you are benefiting from natural assets and you are paying for services one way or another. So for you too, it would be important to understand the role that natural assets can play as a core part of your community's infrastructure. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're doing such amazing work with MNAI, and I think it's, it's vital to helping these communities where climate change is really at the forefront and adapting to that is really helping people, climate change is impacting them, but helping them adapt to it and mitigating it on a um, tangible level. So thank you for all the amazing work you're doing. Thank you for the opportunity. I will say, and I stress this in the course, that natural asset management is not just my story or MNAI's story. It's many people's stories. There's many people working on this in uh, many different ways, and it's very much a collective effort and a shared series of stories. So I think that's worth emphasizing. And thank you to everyone who's listening. If you are interested in taking the natural asset management course, there will be a link in the podcast description, or you can visit the Adaptation Learning Network website. I hope each of you have a wonderful day.